You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, if you have Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 5 this morning. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under your seat or near there, uh, page 913 is where you'll find today's text. We're going to continue on in our series in the book of Acts, and uh, it's the fifth week in that series, so we're in the fifth chapter uh, this morning. The last few verses of chapter 4, uh, which we're actually skipping over, uh, they sound a lot like the end of chapter 2. So Luke, uh, the historian, the theologian who's writing this book, he gives us at the end of chapter 4 a description of the early church living together in community. Uh, and we see there that they are both caring for each other to the point that there's not a poor person among them. They're also proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus and seeing many people added to their number. But the end of chapter 4 also serves as really a backdrop to introduce who will, uh, a man who will become a main character later in the story whose name is Barnabas. It introduces Barnabas and it contrasts his example of generosity, his integrity, with the deceit, the deception of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. So that's where we pick up the story uh, in Acts chapter 5. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. 
So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Verse 27, and when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this is the plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, that is the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your spirit, that even now in these precious moments together, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we might find freedom, and that in your will we might discover peace. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. Amen. There's a lot in Acts chapter 5. There's a lot in all of these chapters that we are making our way through at quick speed. But this passage in Acts really is an exploration of two things, fear and freedom. Fear and freedom. We're going to spend our time this morning exploring those two things, and for each one we'll consider what it is and what it does. So first, fear. Fear and what it is. The account of Ananias and Sapphira is jarring, is it not? troubling. There's all of this momentum in the early church. There's boldness, as we looked at last week. There's people being added to their number. And then there's this record-scratching moment, this record-scratching instance of Ananias and Sapphira. It's actually a lot like what happened to the Israelites after their first victory in the Promised Land. After entering the Promised Land and conquering Jericho, they were supposed to devote Jericho's wealth to destruction. But there was a man named Achan, and he kept some of that wealth back 
for himself. Actually, the word here used about Ananias is the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament used of Achan after Jericho, holding some back for himself. Ananias and Sapphira then are independently confronted by Peter. They independently lie, and then each immediately breathe their last and die. The key lines come in verses 5 and and verse 11. So look back at those. Verse 5, And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. In the original language, this word fear has a range of meaning. In different parts of Scripture, this word is variously translated terror, awe, reverence, and respect. Most often, I think, precisely because of that range to the word, translators prefer the summary term fear to try to capture some or all of it. If you've been around the church for a while, if you've seen this word used in various parts of Scripture before, you'll want to run quickly to the reverence or respect meaning of the word. You'll want to run to that meaning of the word. And, and rightfully so. To fear God means we have reverence for God. But in Acts chapter 5, there is something more than reverence going on. There is some terror in this fear. Would you not be terrified to find out that people drop dead on the spot because they were deceptive about their charitable contributions? Would that not give you a little bit of, I don't think it's just reverence and respect. This is a hard passage, and I'm sure we feel that this morning. In the scope of the ways people sin against God, both in Scripture and in our present day, this just doesn't seem like it merits that kind of immediate mortal consequence. Why, for example, does Peter himself not drop dead when he denies Jesus? When he lies about his affiliation with Jesus? When the rooster crows a third time, Jesus looks up at him. Why is that not the moment that Peter breathes his last? We can't answer that specifically. And actually, I think that's the point. That's the point. We have such a tame view of God. We become so familiar with who we think God is, with how we think God should work in the world, that when he does something different from that, we think God is the problem. But friends, it's it's us, it's we who are the problem. We try to force God into our box, into a formulaic way of working in the world where he is controllable or at least predictable and behaves the way that we think he should. So if nothing else, instances like Ananias and Sapphira, like Achan after Jericho, or like Aaron's sons when they offer strange fire, as the Bible puts it, and die on the spot, or like Korah's rebellion where the earth opens up and swallows people, these instances jolt us out of that trance, out of our subdued, watered-down, and therefore irreverent views of God. God does not exist as an equation for us to solve. He exists as the sovereign, holy creator and king of everything. As the psalmist says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now it's true that we who are in Christ need not be terrified of God. You heard Shay read that passage from 1 John 4 a little while ago. The apostle John who is right there in the room when Ananias and Sapphira fall down dead, 
He's the one who goes on to write that, that passage in 1 John 4, that perfect love casts out fear. In other words, our deepest motive for obeying God is not ultimately our terror, it is his love. It's because of the great love with which he has loved us, we have confidence that God's heart overflows with grace and mercy for us because of Jesus. Just don't mistake God's love for his impotence, for his predictability, for his control ability. Or think that you and I get to actually define what perfect love is and what it looks like. We are the ones made in God's image. We are not the ones who get to make God in our own. And he is not just a loving God. He absolutely is, but he is the living God. As the author of Hebrews will write some years after this instance in Acts chapter 5, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is the loving God. He is also the living God. So that's what fear is. That's what fear is. Acts chapter 5 also shows us some of what fear does. What fear does. For one, fear protects us from presumption. It protects us from presumption. Ananias and Sapphira's sin here is not a lack of generosity. As Peter said, as, you heard, as we heard him say, this was their property. It was their money. So their sin was not that they didn't give all of it. Their sin was lying and deceiving people about that. They made everyone think they were giving the full amount when they were holding back some for themselves. And in doing so, they were not just lying to the church, to the men and women that they were in community with. They were lying verse 3, to the Holy Spirit. They were lying, verse 4, to God. They were testing, verse 9, the Spirit of the Lord. In Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul goes on to write, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. That's the essence of Ananias and Sapphira's sin. It's making a mockery of God. It's to presume that God does not know and God does not see that they can act however they want without acknowledging the reality of a God who is present, a God who sees, a God who knows. Which is convicting, at least to me. Because there are many moments in my life where I functionally live as if God's existence is inconsequential. And wherever that might be the case for you and for me, let this fear of God wake us up. Where, where do you lie to God? Where do you test God, where do you mock God by functionally living as if he is not present and powerful, as if he does not know and see who you are and what your life looks like? Second, fear helps us perceive the gravity of our sin. It protects us from presumption. It also helps us perceive the gravity of our sin. The truly amazing thing about Ananias and Sapphira is that the same thing doesn't happen more. Can we think about it that way? that the same thing doesn't happen more, that the same thing doesn't happen to me. Sin is serious. It's an offense and an affront to God in a way that you and I can become so quickly desensitized to. And so it's accounts like this one, or like when Moses strikes the rock. We've been reading through the Bible in a year. Those of us that have been doing that arrived at that passage this week, where Moses strikes the rock and is therefore prohibited from entering the promised land. Or when the oxen stumble and a man named Uzzah reaches out to catch the Ark of the Covenant as it falls and he dies because he touched it and he wasn't supposed to. It's these instances where we see how serious sin is, how horrific our sin is when it is held up against 
the holiness of God. And there, but for the grace of God, go I. Let this account resensitize you to your sin. Let it, let it resensitize you to, to the holiness of God. Because as we increasingly perceive the holiness of God, and as we increasingly perceive the gravity of our sin, as the chasm between those two things grows wider in our own eyes, in our own estimation, so does the worth and the beauty and the need for Jesus to close that gap, to bridge that gap, become bigger and more beautiful in our eyes. The wider that chasm is, the more we see the holiness of God and the gravity of our sin, the more we will appreciate Jesus and his work. Third, fear like this purifies the church. It purifies the church. So look back at verses 13 and 14. Two things, after Ananias and Sapphira die, two things happen simultaneously. One, nobody dares join them. And then, also, more than ever, believers are added to the Lord. Now, the first part probably makes sense. If you heard of a couple dropping dead because they didn't disclose that they weren't giving the full amount, you wouldn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So many people stay away. But many other people, more than ever, Luke writes, come to faith in Jesus. Here's what we learn from that. Fear, both terror and the true reverence of God, this is the antidote to nominalism. It's the antidote to nominalism of people who pay lip service to God, who dabble in spirituality or dabble in religion. See, when the presence of God, when the Holy Spirit is living and active in the life of Jesus' church, those who truly seek the kingdom of God will be drawn in. And those who want to dabble will go away. Now, that's the opposite, is it not, of the way that we often function in our churches today. It's one thing for us to be welcoming and hospitable. We're called by God to be such, and I pray we always are welcoming and hospitable people. But we often go beyond that and we try to accommodate. We try to make the kingdom of God and following Jesus easy, palatable, relevant to, our, to every facet of our society. And we do that thinking that this is how the Lord will add to our number. See, the, the heart behind that, the desire is often good. The approach is just completely wrong. I don't know if there's a more seeker, insensitive account than Ananias and Sapphira in the Bible. I don't know if there's a more seeker, insensitive account. Can you imagine like the billboard campaign, the mailers, the Facebook ads that would go out about this early church? New church in town, we meet each week at Solomon's Portico. Amazing teaching, life-changing community. There's actually not a poor person among us. Uh, the, actually though, people who mock God might drop dead spontaneously. It's not seeker sensitive, it's not. Now, let me, let me be really clear about this. If you're someone here this morning, listening in this morning, who's not a Christian and who's wrestling through what you believe, please hear this. God is unrelentingly patient with people who question and doubt. Unrelentingly patient with people who question and doubt. Acts chapter 5 is not a warning to stay away. It's a warning to take the kingdom of God seriously. It's not a case against being a seeker. It's actually a case for being a sincere seeker. Someone who, if convinced of the truth of the gospel, is really willing to reorient your life to live in light of it. Not someone who just dabbles in spirituality and religion. 
One last thing about what fear does. Fear shows us the power of the Holy Spirit over the power of Satan. So immediately after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, we read that back in Acts chapter 2, Satan launches this all-out assault on the church. Multifaceted assault. There's physical violence and persecution. We've read some of that. We'll read some more in just a second. There's distraction. We'll see next week when we get to Acts chapter 6 that administrating very legitimate needs becomes a distraction for the apostles from focusing on what they really need to focus on, which is the ministry of the word and prayer. And then here with Ananias and Sapphira, there is an attack from within. There's moral subversion from within. As Peter identifies in verse 3, it's Satan who has so filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. So below the surface of what's playing out here in Acts 5, this is a confrontation of power between Satan and the Spirit of God, between the father of lies and the spirit of truth. And even though God's untamable power will unnerve us, because it does unnerve us, it is assuring to know that Satan's power to lie and deceive cannot overcome the Spirit's power to expose and to reveal the truth. What is hidden will be exposed. Light has come into the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And just as God refuses to abandon his world to sin's power to corrupt, here the Holy Spirit refuses to abandon Jesus' church to the power of Satan, to lie and deceive and to keep it in the darkness. So all of that to say, let the fear described here in Acts chapter 5 lead all of us to more clearly see and to worship the God of the universe, the God who is there. Not the God that we have made in our own image, but truly the God who is there. That's fear. It's one of the two big ideas that this text explores. The other is freedom. It's freedom. So let's first talk about what freedom is. There are actually two types of freedom talked about in Acts chapter 5. The first is temporal freedom. And so beginning in verse 17, we read the account of how, a lot like in chapter 4, the Jewish leaders take the apostles into custody. This time it's all 12 of them, not just Peter and John, but all 12 apostles are thrown into public prison. Unlike Acts chapter 4, though, this time they don't spend the night there. They are miraculously freed in the middle of the night by an angel of the Lord. And so when morning dawns, the doors are still locked. Imagine this. I mean, imagine the shock of this for these guards at the prison. The doors are still locked. The guards are still standing at their posts. No one's inside the prison cell. Instead, the apostles are back in the temple proclaiming all of the words of life in Jesus Christ. That's temporal freedom. Temporal freedom. And this is not the last time in the book of Acts or in the New Testament that we see God bring his people, his followers, miraculously out of prison or out of some kind of bondage so they can go on with their lives and ministries. But that kind of freedom actually is not the point. As much as we do sometimes see God miraculously bring that kind of freedom, we'll also read in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, apostles die for their faith. And actually when the entire book of Acts ends, the apostle Paul himself is under house arrest in Rome. He is not free in that sense of the word. So what matters infinitely more than temporal freedom is true freedom spiritual freedom, where you can lay aside the weight of sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is marked out for you. 
And true freedom, as it always does, involves both being freed from something and freed to something. How do we see that here in Acts chapter 5? Well, for one thing, the church here is being freed from the hard-heartedness and the blindness and the errors of Judaism, which is a really big deal and a big change in the history of God's redemptive work. See, since Abraham, the Jewish people had been God's chosen instrument in the world. They've been the people through which God would bless all the nations of the earth. But we see in the New Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, they, they missed, they rejected God's chosen Messiah. They rejected Jesus. Of course, God is sovereignly at work in the midst of all of that. But from a human standpoint, if all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, if Jesus is going to tear down the dividing walls of hostility and create one new humanity, the church at some point has to come out from underneath the authority of Judaism when they are not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. But the how, the how of that matters greatly. And what we see in these early chapters of Acts is that the church does not remove itself from Judaism. It is forced out by the Jewish leaders. The apostles and these initial few thousand followers of Jesus are the fulfillment of that ancient Jewish faith. It's the next step of God's redemptive work through Abraham's family. And that's why the apostles all in the early part of Acts are holding their gatherings at the temple and they're attending the temple together daily for prayer. See, Christianity was not at its core a separatist movement. It was a reform movement. It was a fulfillment movement. It was a movement from the inside trying to call the historic people of God to see the fulfillment of Christ. And it's only when that proved impossible, it's when they were persecuted and forced out, that God granted them the freedom to separate. Because at some point, and this happens in the book of Acts, now they must separate, they must be free because God's salvation itself is at stake. We don't have time to flesh out all the implications of that. All that to say... In a moment and in a culture so characterized by an instinct to divide, notice that in the early church, the instinct was to remain. The difference between freedom and autonomy is massive. Freedom wants other people to be free. It wants to bring other people into that freedom. It doesn't want to say, I'm out. Get away from me. And the apostles here are trying to bring people into that freedom of the fulfillment of Jesus. The early Christians here are also being freed from the fear of man, from the fear of man. And we'll come back to that in future chapters of Acts. But just for today, notice verse 29. They repeat what they said back in Acts chapter 4. We must obey God rather than men. Fear of man paralyzes and holds us captive. Fear of man prevents us from being faithful to God. And the reality is we are going to fear someone. We're going to fear someone. Our lives are marked by the ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment decision, choose you this day whom you will fear. Not only that famous verse in Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve, but choose you this day whom you will fear. And if we don't fear God, if we don't esteem his holiness, his greatness, his goodness, we will by default fear other people. And we'll be constrained not to live according to the design of the one true God, but constrained to bend to whatever popular opinion dictates in any given moment. We actually see that playing out here with the captain and the temple guard. The apostles here are not 
spared because of the deep conviction and the fear of God of the Jewish leaders. They're spared because, verse 26, the Jewish leaders are afraid of the people. They fear men while the apostles fear God. So that's what the early church is being freed from. What are they being freed to? What are they being freed to? They're being freed to participate in the unstoppable mission of God, to use their lives for something that significant, to stand for something eternal because they stand on something eternal. And this is why true freedom is so much more important than temporal freedom. It doesn't matter if you're in prison. It doesn't matter if you're constrained in some way by your culture. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. Your life is a testament. Your life is a witness, to use one of Luke's favorite words in this book, your life is a witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And some years later, writing to his protege from a prison cell, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Then he goes on to say, but the word of God is not bound. But the word of God is not bound. As our lives are rooted in God's word, as we are in Christ, then regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our temporal freedom, we are truly free. We're truly free. That's what freedom is. Let's close this morning by looking at two things freedom does. Two things freedom does. One, it emboldens our endurance. It emboldens our endurance. Miraculously set free from prison, what do the apostles do? What would we do? Would we not try to maybe not repeat the same thing the next time? Hide? Whatever we might be inclined to do at that time. The apostles don't run away. They don't hide. They go right back to the temple. They go back to the same place. They keep getting arrested. They don't make it hard to find them. And then when the temple guard does come to arrest them again, they just go with them. They don't resist. Now, in our cultural moment, in this time and place, we might not be under the threat of imprisonment for proclaiming the name of Jesus. You have to go to faraway lands like Canada to experience that. But if you're going to be faithful to Jesus in this life, in this time and place, you are going to need endurance. If, even if that doesn't entail imprisonment for you, in the face of discouragement, in the face of public opinion, even more painful in the face of conflict with people you love who think you are hateful and backward because of what you believe. When every fiber of your being wants to run away and wants to quit, the call in that moment will be to persevere, will be to outlast, to endure. But not only to outlast, to outlast with joy, with joy, because the second thing freedom does is makes us joyful in our suffering. After they are beaten, they receive this, this penalty that the Jews doled out to religious offenders, the 40 lashes minus one. 40, 39 lashes, the typical way that was done was with a leather strap, two to the back, one to the chest. Repeat 13 times until you hit 39 lashes total. After they are beaten like that, the apostles go home rejoicing. Rejoicing. About what? That they stuck it to the Jews? That they were superior people to the ones who beat them? That they were right and the Jews were wrong? No, they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. 
The deepest joy in the Christian life comes from fellowship with Jesus. It comes from our union with him. The position that we have of being in Christ by faith in his life and death and resurrection. But even more, the deepest joy of the Christian life comes from our communion with him. When we have a moment-by-moment, day-by-day experience of that position, of that union. The fellowship, Paul writes about, of sharing in the sufferings of Jesus, of knowing him in his death, that we might also know him in his resurrection. That comes in the high moments of life, this union and communion with Christ, when we're overwhelmed with a glimpse of the worth of Jesus, when we're filled with gratitude and hope, when we sit back and see all kinds of glimpses of his kindness to us. But it also comes in the suffering and in the ridicule. It comes in the humiliation, in the criticism especially when you experience those things because of your commitment to unashamedly name the name of Jesus, to, like the apostles, bear witness to who he is and what he's done. That's the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus. That's what the apostles are experiencing when they say they're rejoicing to be counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name. So I invite you to consider this morning, is your life marked not only by endurance, but joyful endurance. In a culture that is increasingly characterized by values antithetical to the gospel and the implications of it, a culture increasingly characterized by values articulated, for example, in places like the Equality Act, which also has almost no provisions for religious freedom, are you prepared, men and women, not only to endure, but to endure with joy, to rejoice Why would we rejoice? Eugene Peterson says it this way. We speak our words of praise in a world that is hellish. We sing our songs of victory in a world where things get messy. We live our joy among people who neither understand nor encourage us. But the content of our lives is God, not humanity. And he goes on to say this. We are not scavenging in the dark alleys of the world, poking in its garbage cans for a bare subsistence. No, we are traveling in the light toward God who is rich in mercy and strong to save. It is Christ and not culture that defines our lives. It is the help we experience, not the hazards we risk, that shapes our days. What a good word that was 30 years ago, and what a good word it is for us today. It is Christ and not culture that defines our lives. That is true freedom. And so church, let the fear of God strip you of all nominalism. Let it drive out from you whatever fear of man remains deep in your heart. And let the true freedom of the gospel, the word of God that is not bound and will never be bound, form you into people of joyful endurance for the duration of your lives on this earth. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, our God, You have given us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior and Master. Grant that as we joyfully receive it, and I pray that our posture this morning would be that of joyful recipients of your finished work, Jesus. Stir in us the joy that is ours in you, even as we count the cost and consider what it will take to be people of endurance. It is a joyful gospel that we receive for ourselves. And as we receive it for ourselves, may we gratefully share it with others. In all of these things, may we have reverence for you. May we fear you, 
You, the God who really is there, not the God of our own making. And may we give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.